Our homes have been a place we've all spent more time than usual over the past year, and it's had many of us rethinking how we want to live, from moving house altogether to remodeling and throwing on a fresh coat of paint. And even now that we're back out in the world with more regularity, the desire to build more creative, energizing, and calming spaces in our homes is not going away for many. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs with me, Daniel Bage. First up this week, we hear from Lucas London, the CEO and co-founder of Lick, a UK-based home decor brand which was getting off the ground at a very opportune moment. Launched last year, Lick is trying to make home makeovers a little bit more fun and simple. While the paint and wallpaper market is massive globally, there's a lot of room for growth in home renovation in the direct-to-consumer space. Lick has about 50 paint colors to choose from and has created its own line of supplies to make the job easy. They've also created a line of wallpaper and blinds and have partnered with furniture and design brand Made.com to expand their reach. But it's in building community and providing inspiration where Lucas hopes Lick can really shine moving forward. Here's our conversation. I started my career in finance. I spent five years at a hedge fund, so definitely very different. But then I was lucky to move across to an online business and have been in those roles in sort of online tech businesses since then. And the last firm I was working at was an Australian business called Airtasker, which was a marketplace to find services like gardening, handyman, decorators. And it was an Australian business that actually just IPO'd. And it was there that I met my co-founder, Sam Bradley. And it was there we got, I guess, exposure to the decorating industry and became just very fascinated with the fact that you had this enormous market, in particular paint, yet it was predominantly offline. So only 4% of paint was bought online. And actually the user experience and the customer experience tended to be a really frustrating one with huge amount of colors to choose from, not much support, not much education, and people really struggle to make the decision and to decorate their home, which is actually a really accessible way to transform your space. And we thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to try and solve that problem and really be online focused first. And obviously we then launched in lockdown. So we launched on the day of lockdown and many people were at home. Many people wanted to transform their spaces as they were focusing a lot on the home and uh, the stores were shutting. So it was great to be in a position to help people keep busy. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting timing, I guess. And you've run with that, which wasn't the best situation for anyone last year, but it's a good way to get off the ground, I imagine. Talk to me just a little bit about what the offering is then. You're doing everything from paint to, to blinds, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. But we really start with the support element. So we focus on building a community that support each other. We create a lot of content to give inspiration, education. We have color specialists that will help on social, on video calls, and hopefully soon in person. So really we start at the point of helping you make the decision in terms of what you want to do with your with your home and even inspire you to be maybe more creative than you originally had planned to be. And then it's about giving you all the tools you need to do that. So further support and very high quality paint and wallpaper and blinds and sustainable offering of supplies you need to decorate. So we have pulp and bamboo made brushes and rollers and really everything you need to kind of transform your home. You know, it's curious to hear you talk about the idea of content and building a community for the purpose of inspiring people, which is fantastic. But when we think about 
a lot of these brands, some of them direct to consumer, many that we featured on this show who do everything from plant-based meals to plants to cleaning supplies. There's no one really in the home decor space, so there's good opportunity for you there. But how do you go about building that? As we've mentioned, it's not your background. So how do you build the team? How do you become experts on uh, inspiring and informing people on how to sort of start to change up their home? Yeah, I guess there's two answers to that. The first is the community aspect of building the business. And, and really, when we first launched the business, we were very aware that online, most of the images that you were seeing were pictures of interiors that were quite frequently unattainable, sort of beautiful homes. And we thought it would be really interesting to put the person in front and their project and what they were doing really at the front. So at the beginning, it was very much encouraging friends and family who were using Lick in the early days to show us, to send in videos, to send in images and show us what they were creating in a very real way. And we thought that would resonate with a larger market and inspire that market to decorate and even support them through it. And that really started almost a kind of people-powered decorating movement where today we have a huge diverse community that is doing amazingly creative things with their home and sharing it with us and sharing it with the rest of the community. So it really started from this desire to focus on the individual first. In terms of setting up the business, we wanted to invest in making sure that we were building a really strong brand and a user experience online that was aligned to our goals. So we raised what felt at the time was quite a large pre-seed round that allowed us to invest in a really, really powerful, really strong team, invest in that tech platform, the product offering and the brand to ensure that we were trying to solve the problems that we saw in the market. You know, when you look at paint and, and home decor here in the UK, there's really one big high street brand. Where I'm from in Canada, there's no real brand involved in buying a can of paint. You go to the hardware store, you pick a color, they mix it up for you and you get what's ever available, I guess. And then you're on your own to go home and figure things out. So just talk to me about how you're trying to create that whole journey for people and put a little bit of brand into it. We've talked about community, but there's also an important part, and that is the product in really delivering on that brand side. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Traditionally, paint companies have been sort of painting and coating companies. So the incumbents are very large, I guess, chemical companies. That's how they started their journey out. Yet actually, home decor and color, and we're very color-driven as a brand, is a very sort of powerful, content-rich subject. You know, the creative things you can do with color and the way it impacts your home and your life as well, makes it a wonderful kind of story and subject to create a brand with. And there's only traditionally been one in the UK that's been very focused on kind of much higher interior design versus more accessible, I guess I would call it more mass market. So it's a great opportunity that the industry creates to create a wonderful brand. And I think for us, it's always been focusing on sustainable product offering. It's been focused on very high quality products that are designed for the modern consumer. So paint that doesn't need too many coats, that's easy to apply, doesn't need a primer and you can wash any dirt and marks off really easily. You know, those are really fundamentally key parts of the brand and the brand pillars. But again, it goes back to this community, making sure that we're resonating really with the individual and kind of promoting that individual and what they're doing with their home. I wonder if you could talk to us just specifically about the range of products and the development of that paints, wallpaper, now blinds as well. How do you go about 
creating products that match with the brand that you want to build. And what was that journey like? Was it over a long period of time before launch? Give us a sense of that. Yeah, we started developing our product range around six to nine months before launch. And the focus was getting very talented external people to help us. So we got decorators, interior designers, and manufacturers to collaborate into creating a curated color palette of very high quality paint that, that was fit for purpose. And then a lot of the development over the last 12 months has been improving the, I guess, eco-credentials and becoming more sustainable. When we first launched, because you're very low volume, it's really hard and challenging to influence what has established supply chains. And we were kind of very transparent about that. So, you know, originally we were getting our cans from Asia and now we're sourcing them and developing them in, in the UK localizing our supply chain, moving from wood brushes to bamboo brushes because we knew bamboo grew faster and had less negative impact. So really development of a more environmentally responsible supply chain has been a big part of the development process. We launched a curated range of blinds at the end of last year and now our focus is really moving that from what is a kind of MVP to a much stronger product range. We just hired a very talented new product development lead that is going to be leading that alongside our creative lead. We'll continue to develop and, and a lot of those developments are also in collaboration with influencers and promoting up and coming designers for wallpaper and, and new colors. So there'll be consistent development and it's about working with talented, experienced people to create those products. I mentioned the idea earlier of some of those great D2C brands, which I imagine align well with what you're doing in the home space, particularly in talking about community, sustainability, things like that. You have partnered with Made.com, but is there other opportunity there to work with some of these great brands to continue to inspire people to think about the home and what they can do to spruce things up? Yes, absolutely. So in terms of the kind of channel mix as well, we focused at launch on D2C partly because, because of the market that we were launching in at the time, but also because there was a, a massive opportunity to take market share from a predominantly offline industry by moving it online. But really, we're as excited about working with other brands and marketplaces and our own physical retail because it just creates opportunities, additional opportunities for us to engage with the decorator and again, support that decorator. So we do a lot on video calls and on social and some people would love to come into store and, and speak in person. And, and we're looking forward to being able to, to help in physical form as well. Where do you think you might grow in that space? I mentioned the idea of plants. We did an interview with Patch in past, I remember, and the founder was talking about the idea of not just getting people to buy plants from them and have them delivered to the door, but maybe be inspired to get out in their garden and go to the garden center and continue that journey of, of sort of discovery in that space. Where do you think you fit in that sense in helping to grow the community and, and helping people think a little bit outside the box when they're thinking about engaging with brands, engaging with their local community and shops as well? Yeah, I think Patch is a, a great business and there are a number of similarities. We don't just focus on the home, so we've been engaging and supporting with as many independent retailers who have sadly been closed during this period and, and helping them give them a fresh sort of coat of colour and, and upgrade their stores while they've got the opportunities as their stores are closed. So definitely engaging with other brands and, and the high street itself 
a lot of the content that people engage with on Lick isn't just about the painting, it's about a lot of the DIY before and the preparation. And we sit in that space that's kind of post-construction and before furniture, like the canvas of the home, which is where you can make the biggest impact. So it's that whole DIY journey and any brand or anyone or any company or charity that want to change their space, we're super keen to engage with. Well, very interesting. You know, on the show, we often talk about the other side of the business to raising money and, and gaining traction online and in-store, and that is in uh, your own team and building that out. What's that experience been like? Obviously, a little bit more difficult in the past year, but you've worked at uh, companies of, of different sizes uh, in your career. So how's it been to add to the team and and uh, what's important to you in sort of building that part of the business out? Yeah, I'd say that's, that's the most important part of the business for sure. When I joined Airtas in my last company that I was working at, I was the GM of the UK. So I built that team from scratch. So I've got a lot of experience there and have been lucky to work with some great people in the past that have guided me in terms of how to build a team. But it's been a really interesting exercise at LIC because obviously starting in lockdown, you know, many of the team, well, pretty much all the team were hired without meeting and many of the team haven't met each other or if they have, have only met each other in, you know, the single digit times and creating an environment where we are productive, we're collaborating, everyone's engaged in the mission has been a fascinating thing to do. And we've been very lucky to attract some amazing talent. We hired Marina Gori, who was the CPO of Super Awesome and one of the co-founders there, and she was head of talent at Seedcamp. And she's been extremely valuable in terms of helping us create this culture and this high engagement and attract and retain some really talented people. Just give us a sense, Lucas, what is on your plate these days as far as what the next steps are and what you're working on to continue to grow the brand. We've just raised a Series A and that investment has been focused on is for internationalization. So we're going into new markets. We're extending into new categories. We grew very quickly and sort of outgrew our supply chain. So there's a lot of investment being made into rebuilding our supply chain and innovating in this category, which we'll be really excited to share. So yeah, really building the team, building supply chain, internationalizing, and with all the sole focus on get as many decorators globally to transform their homes. Yeah, interesting. Is there concern for you in, in that quick growth and expansion, you know, in a little over a year from evolving the product range to moving into new countries, is there any, uh, concern for you in how quickly you're growing and how do you sort of keep things on track in that sense? Yeah, I think growth, whilst fantastic, brings its challenges and, and our biggest challenge has always been the supply chain and building that during this period as well. We brought in Michael Watson, who was VP of Sherwin Williams and is very experienced, who's, who's helping us build out our supply chain. What's so interesting about what we're doing is because we're so content and community driven, for us, it makes the most sense to be in as many markets to be available in as large a market as possible so we can scale that community further. So it makes sense to internationalize potentially earlier than other businesses would. But the challenge really is making sure that we can provide that customer experience at scale and in new markets. So, you know, that focus is really heavily on, on that supply chain and having the resource to support decorators at scale. Lucas, this has been very interesting. I appreciate your time and we wish you the best of luck with Lick. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate you inviting me on. Lucas London, CEO and co-founder of Lick. You can learn more about the brand at lickhome.com.
Dubai Tourism is proud to partner with the entrepreneurs on Monocle 24. Dubai is one of the most dynamic and innovative cities on the planet in which to do business and a place where you can enjoy unrivaled quality of life. Dubai should be your destination, whether you're looking to start a new venture or take your career to the next level. Dan Bolton is the founder and director of Dan Bolton Creative Management Agency. Dan arrived in Dubai in 2008 and says the city's close-knit creative community has been a driving force behind his success. Dubai can compete with the rest of the world in terms of some of the creativity that it has to offer. And definitely from an events perspective, we produce and deliver some of the biggest events the world's ever seen. It would normally take, you know, like 10 years in a different country to be able to do this. In Dubai, it can take two years. It's very fast paced and we're constantly evolving and constantly doing things differently. And that's the most exciting thing about doing business here in Dubai. Dan Bolton there. Dubai, the future of business is here. Next up, we're off to Hong Kong to meet Blair Crichton, the co-founder of Corona, which is said to be Asia's very first whole plant-based meat alternative company. Blair worked previously with Impossible Foods and co-founded Corona in 2018 with Dan Riegler, who has spent years working to improve agricultural supply chains. Corona has created a whole plant pork alternative from jackfruit, harvested in Sri Lanka, which is featured on the menus of dozens of restaurants in Singapore and Hong Kong. Blair hopes to launch the brand in the U.S. soon, but is also set on expanding the range to cater to many more people who are choosing vegetarian options or are simply plant-curious in their diets. Last week, we heard about entrepreneurs revolutionizing farming in Asia to create more localized growing options in mind of food security and lowering the carbon footprint of agriculture. And today, we'll hear why plant-based meat alternatives also play a huge role in Asia, which makes up a massive portion of the global market for meat. Here's Blair now speaking to Monocle's Nina Mio. I grew up in Hong Kong, so I was born here, so Hong Kong is home for me. I started my career as a banker working for HSBC, both in Shanghai and Hong Kong and then in New York. And I left banking to go to business school in the US. And at that time, I just knew I didn't want to do finance anymore, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. But after getting into business school, I started doing some reflecting and I'd always been very environmentally conscious. And I made the decision I wanted to be doing something that was having a positive impact on the planet, as well as for profit. So kind of triple bottom line. So I was looking at a range of different things from renewable energy and obviously also the food and ag space, because this was back in 2016 when things were just starting to kind of pick up. I was following emerging brands like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat at that time, when not many people knew who they were. And I actually ended up going to work for Impossible Foods whilst I was at business school. That really transitioned me into the plant-based space. It was kind of like I'd found my calling because as well as being environmentally conscious, I'd actually been a vegetarian for a long time and became vegan just before going to business school. So it aligned with my personal values as well as the career goal of wanting to do something that was having a positive impact on the climate, but still for profit. And how did Karana come about? Karana basically came about as a result, I guess, of the meeting of the minds between Dan, my co-founder and myself. 
whilst I was working at Impossible Foods and also with some other plant-based and cell-based meat companies in the US, I was doing some work on Asia and international expansion strategy. And what I saw is, okay, we're bringing beef products to Asia in quite Western formats, because initially it was still very focused on the burger. And of course there's space for that and they've been really successful, but I also saw a huge opportunity to do something more localized and more focused on Asia and particularly on the meats that we consume here. In Asia, we consume pork, chicken and seafood more than we do beef. And I guess somewhat selfishly in terms of some of the products we're developing, I having grown up in Hong Kong, love my dim sum and um, I really wanted to be able to eat some good plant-based dim sum. So basically I met Dan at a conference in the US and I'd been thinking about doing my own thing in Asia and had been pushed along by a couple of people that I'd met out here encouraging me to do it, but thought I needed to spend some more time in the US, you know, with the market leaders and in the innovation hub of Silicon Valley. But met Dan and he had already started Karana, but was only a few months into it and was looking for a co-founder. Basically, we realized we had a lot of the same ideas about things in terms of how to approach the Asian market. I, at that time, wasn't so focused on the whole plant story, but it was something that Dan was very passionate about. Having worked in the agri-commodity supply chain space, he had seen firsthand some of the issues with commodity crops and agri-commodities. And so he was very passionate about really leveraging the biodiversity that's out there in Asia. And that's something we focus on. But as we sort of talked about that and developed our business plan, we realized actually there's, it makes sense as a real business opportunity to do something that's differentiated, that is whole plant minimally processed rather than based on commodity crops like soy, pea and wheat. So Dan and I did some founder dating for a while, which was fun, just kind of testing how we work together. I was still based in Silicon Valley. I traveled out to Singapore for about a little over a month. And after that, signed on the dotted line and packed up my bags and shipped out back to Asia. And so yeah, it's really great to be back in my home region and doing this. Can you tell me about how you came up with jackfruit? And for people listening, what does it feel like to actually eat jackfruit? For jackfruit, the reason we landed there is, as I mentioned earlier, Dan is passionate about leveraging biodiversity and the whole plant side of things. And so in our food system right now, 12 crops make up 75% of what we eat. And we only commonly consume about 150 of 300,000 edible plant species. So there's this huge opportunity to explore the biodiversity out there and find ingredients that are naturally meat-like that just need nudging in the right direction through innovative processing techniques or smart ways to kind of bring them to market and scale them up. So we're very transparent. We're not the first people to ever have used jackfruit as a meat replacement. And it's actually been used in local cuisines in the countries where it grows for a long time in sort of South Asia and Southeast Asia, usually in a curry format and often really, really delicious, but it's a laborious ingredient to work with. If you were just taking the jackfruit from the tree and preparing it in your kitchen, I mean, you're talking hours and also a lot of knowledge around the ingredient. What we found is the way that it had been commercialized and industrialized as a meat replacement didn't meet consumer expectations around taste and experience. But we knew it could be amazing because Dan had actually 
tried a jackfruit dish that he thought was pork when he ate it and didn't realize and this was before he kind of moved towards being plant-based when he was in his transition and still eating meat and he was living in indonesia at the time where jackfruit grows and he just found it really hard to source so you know that was kind of the genesis of like okay well this could be the first ingredient we look into and then we then started obviously looking at, like, it doesn't make sense from a business perspective. Is it scalable? Is it available? And all of those kind of things. Amongst other metrics we look at around sustainability and whatnot. Jackfruit itself is a highly sustainable ingredient. It's very high yielding, requires little inputs. It is also abundantly available. So currently upwards of 60% of the world's jackfruit crop goes to waste. So there's a huge opportunity to reduce that wastage and bring this readily available ingredient to market. And what we've done is develop our own proprietary process for processing the jackfruit. It's all mechanical, so we still say it's minimally processed, but that just enhances the texture and presents it in a way that is more accessible in the kitchen and also does meet consumer experiences around taste and experience, unlike the other industrialized formats of jackfruit. So you now launched in Singapore and Hong Kong. Can you tell me about your strategy for the launch, the partner restaurants and how you're going to launch retail soon? Yeah, it's been really exciting. We launched Singapore and Hong Kong within the space of five months. So we launched in Singapore in late January and then Hong Kong in May. So the strategy has really been around initially working with a small group of restaurant partners who can be advocates and ambassadors for the products and the brand, as well as, you know, create great tasting dishes for people who go into their restaurants to try it and to then build some brand awareness there through that before we do a wider rollout. So in Singapore, we see a lot of value in, in working with restaurants initially because not only do they help us, you know, give us credibility, but we also learn a lot from them in terms of how they're cooking with the ingredient, what they're doing with it, what dishes they put together, what challenges they have. And, you know, we're always looking to improve our products. So, you know, if they give us feedback that we can use to improve the product, that's great as well. Can you tell me a little bit about the plant-based meat market in Asia? Because I feel like it's not as easy to penetrate as, you know, the European or the US market when it comes to just plant-based options in general. So you decided to focus on Asia. Do you find it difficult? And what's your take on the future of the market? Yeah, I would say the market here is definitely nascent when you compare it to the US or Europe or even Australia. But I think there is growing interest and it reminds me of how the US market was in 2016, 2017, when I was first making my foray into this space. So there are definitely challenges around consumer education and convincing consumers. But I think consumers here are increasingly paying attention to their health. And as part of that diet and how it impacts their health. And obviously, would never have wanted COVID to happen, but a silver lining of that is it has forced people to think a lot more about their health and healthy lifestyles and healthy eating. And as a whole plant-based, minimally processed product with, you know, our meat only has four ingredients for our shredded pork products and five ingredients for our minced pork products, you know, short ingredient list 
that's very transparent, it definitely ties into that discourse that people have around health. And there are lots of health benefits that come with eating a plant-based diet. So we've got to double down on that education and that messaging. And it's not just us as Corona, it's also the industry in general, so the plant-based food industry. And I very much think it's a rising tide lifts all boats and we can work together to grow the market here in Asia. I think as well, you know, another reason why we chose Asia is obviously from a business perspective, there's an opportunity, but from an impact perspective, there's also a huge opportunity. We're a mission-driven company and we're doing this because we want to affect a better food system, addressing sustainability and climate change, as well as making sure people have access to great and healthy food. And so with such a large amount of the world's population in Asia and rising meat consumption, there is a huge possibility for impact here if you can convince people to adopt a more plant-forward diet. And I think the early signs are promising. China now is the world's largest wellness market. Increasingly young and wealthy Chinese are paying attention to their health and to their lifestyle. And there is a lot of interest in plant-based eating. So, of course, not without its challenges. Hong Kong, for example, is the number one meat consumption per capita globally. People love their meat here. It's almost like vegetables at a meal or an afterthought. But that's not to say that it can't change and it won't change. Blair Crichton, co-founder of Corona. You can learn more at eatcorona.com. My thanks to Nina Mio in our Hong Kong bureau for conducting the interview and to Jack Jewers, who mixed and edited this show. I'm Daniel Bates. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.